grateful to have the chance to open up God's word with you this morning. Uh, We're in Luke, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, please turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to get up and go grab one out of the back. No shame. That's fine. Uh, And if you don't have one even at home, you can just take that Bible home with you. That's our gift to you. Or pull out your phone. We're in Luke chapter 7, and I'll be starting in verse 11. Let's go ahead and dive right in. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier that they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you have um, revealed who you are in it to us, that you have given us your word that we might know you, that we might know your compassion and your power. We ask this morning, God, that even as we open uh, these physical books in front of us, that you would be opening our hearts to your truth. We pray, God, that by your spirit you would challenge us and convict us and change us and comfort us as we have need. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you are here in our midst, and we praise you for that. Amen. As we examine this passage in Luke to see what God has for us today, I think we do well to back up. And zoom out a little bit into uh, Luke's gospel as a whole to remind ourselves of how this fits into the bigger picture. One of the things that I love about Luke is that he doesn't leave us guessing about what he's trying to do. He kind of puts the bottom line on top and lays all of his cards on the table right at the beginning of his gospel. What I'm talking about is Luke chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 where Luke is introducing his gospel And he says um, that he decided to write this account so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. He wanted his patron, a man named Theophilus, and us by extension, to know exactly what is true about Jesus and to have full assurance of that truth. And one of those truths is this, that in Jesus, God meets his people in their darkest hours with compassion and power. God meets his people in their darkest hours with compassion and with power. This is a truth that Luke has been demonstrating in the six plus chapters ahead of this account. And it's a, it's a truth that is just amazingly driven home in what we're looking at today. 
some of the ways that Luke has been demonstrating this. Uh, in Luke chapter 4 is where Jesus' power really starts to come on display in full force. In Luke chapter 4, verse 35, Jesus uh, does his first miraculous uh, act in the book of Luke when he casts a demon out of a, out of a possessed man. And he says, come out, and the man is put back in his right mind. Jesus demonstrates authority not just over spirits, but he demonstrates authority over sickness right after that in Luke chapter 4, verses 39 and following, when he heals not only Simon's mother-in-law, but many others, again, just by commanding sickness to be gone, and it is. That's a demonstration of great power coming out of the compassion that Jesus has. Jesus demonstrates authority in chapter 5, even over bad fishing. I'll lay diving deeper into that for another day, but I'm guessing that some of you here are comforted to know that Jesus is powerful over even a bad day on the water. In chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus demonstrates authority over leprosy, a particularly difficult illness, not only physically, but socially for the one impacted by it. And then right before the passage we're looking at today in chapter 7, verse 10, Jesus demonstrates that he has this authority over sickness and disease and over nature and over the spiritual realm, even at a distance. So you can see what Luke is doing as an author. He's building a case as he writes his account of the gospel of Christ. He's showcasing different things that Jesus has authority over. He's building the case so that Theophilus and all of Luke's readers and all of us here today would know that Jesus responds to people with compassion and with power. And as we come to this passage, there's a new situation. It's a whole new level. If you put yourself in the position of somebody reading this gospel for the first time this morning, somebody who didn't know about Jesus before, what we're thinking when we come to this is we've got to be asking ourselves, okay, Jesus has responded to sickness, he's responded to the physical realm, but this is different, this is death. How is Jesus going to respond to this, we would be asking ourselves that question. We'd be thinking, can he take care of this also? And Jesus responds by showing us that God meets his people in their darkest hour with compassion and with power. And make no mistake about it, this passage is describing a very dark hour. Jesus and 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 this crowd of people with him are coming into a town called Nain, It's a town about 25 miles from Capernaum. It's to the northwest. We've got a map here. Maps are great. Uh, As you're reading scripture, use a map. It's a good thing. So you can see Capernaum up kind of uh, middle of the screen, middle, middle right there. Capernaum is right on the Sea of Galilee. It's on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it acted in some ways as a home base for a lot of Jesus' ministry and mission. Uh, And the town of Nain is at the bottom of the screen over toward the left. It's about 25 miles again to the northwest. Now commentators will say that 25 miles is about a full day's walk. I'm thinking 25 miles is more than a full day's walk, but I guess I didn't walk quite as much as Jesus did. So regardless, we can get a sense of 
where Jesus was, where he's going to, and we recognize that as he's coming into this town of Nain, this is at least a couple of days or, or, or a solid day after the accounts of chapter 7 and before. And as he comes into this city, Jesus and his disciples and his followers are met with a bad situation. So they're coming in, a funeral procession is coming out. You know, even today, funeral processions are a big deal. You, you can't miss one. Uh, often there are police going out in front of the procession to ensure that nothing interrupts it. We want to respect what's happening, so keeping that funeral procession intact is something that's important to us, even as a society, as a culture. So much so that if you're in a funeral procession, one of the mourners following the hearse, you turn your lights on, sometimes your flashers, and you can ignore red lights, you can ignore stop signs. Once the lead car goes through, the procession remains unbroken. It's a big deal. And they were a big deal then too. In fact, in Jesus' day, not only would someone stop for a funeral procession, but they would stop what they were doing. And they would oftentimes join in. So in verse 13, when we read that, um, I'm sorry, in verse 12, when we read that a large crowd came from the town with this widow, it's very possible that that was, in fact, not just a portion of the town, but the majority of the town. You can imagine this whole city essentially emptying out in this funeral procession. And they're leaving the city now to bury this boy, this young man. This isn't something that Jesus and his companions can just stand aside and politely wait for. This isn't something that they have the option to ignore. Something that demands their attention, that demands some sort of a response. And we read that this is no normal funeral procession. A funeral in and of itself is bad, um, but it goes to worse. Verse 12, it's interesting the way it progresses. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. Okay, that, that's bad. The only son of his mother... It just got worse, didn't it? There's a huge difference between a funeral for a grandparent and a funeral for a child. Neither are happy occasions, but a funeral for a child can be almost unbearable, right? I know that many of you know this firsthand. And not only is this a child, but this is an only child. Allison and I have one child, and as I was getting ready for this sermon, I tried to imagine what that might be like, and I literally couldn't even think about imagining it. It's like my emotional circuit breakers just all tripped to off, and I, I can't go there. So the grief of this woman that Jesus is encountering as he walks into this city is deep is profound. And then if it wasn't enough that it had gone from bad to worse, now it goes to horrible, now it goes to unthinkable. Verse 12, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. 
There are economic implications to that. There are family implications and social implications to that. There are grief implications for that. On the economic side, this woman would have been dependent on the men in her life to provide for her. So the fact that she is a widow means that either right now or depending on his age, at some point in the future, her son is the one who's going to be providing for her. She needs that physical provision, and now it's gone. Economically, she's finding herself at the mercy of those around her. She's finding herself for the rest of her life, essentially becoming a beggar. On the family level and on the social level, as a widow with an only son, they were it. This son was all she had left of her immediate family. And now he's gone. And how that changes her life so drastically, so completely. And even as you think about the, the idea and the process of grief, she's bearing this grief alone without the benefit of her husband beside her to lessen the pain and to share the load. This is a horrible situation. This is a dark hour for this woman. Her life has completely fallen apart. So you imagine the scene. She's walking out of town with this crowd behind her I imagine inconsolable. Jesus is walking into town with a crowd behind him. And now we have two crowds and two people meeting at the entrance to this town. So you have Jesus and this woman with hundreds of people around them, all watching to see what happens next. Imagine being somebody uh, from the town, and maybe they don't even know who Jesus is. Maybe they've never met him. Maybe, maybe they're saying, who, who is this guy? Do you, do you know who this is? What, what does he have this big crowd? What's going on here? Maybe you're somebody, one of Jesus' followers. You're with the crowd that was with him, and you're saying, man, what's Jesus going to do now? I mean, I saw him heal some sick people, but this is, let's be honest, this is different. This person isn't just sick. What's Jesus? He... How's he going to respond here? He can't, he doesn't have authority over death, does he? And these two people, meeting together, surrounded by two crowds. Jesus feels her pain. He says something absurd, and he does the impossible. Jesus feels her pain, he says something absurd, and then he does the impossible. First, he feels her pain. In the NIV here, it says that Jesus' heart went out to her. Other translations might say that Jesus had compassion on her. Whatever verbiage we put behind it, the idea is the same, that Jesus sees what's going on, he cares about what's going on, and he not only sees and cares, but he is moved to act. He's not going to stand idly by. I like the way that one... Um, Bible Dictionary puts it when they say this. It says, compassion moved Jesus to take action that affected the lives of those whose needs moved him. When Jesus' response is such that he is described as being moved by compassion, 
the occasion is often the turning point in someone's life. Once Jesus feels compassion, things never stay the same. Once Jesus' heart goes out to this woman, it's not going to be the same. The die has been cast. Now all that comes is the follow-through. Don't underestimate the importance of this. Don't allow yourself, as you're reading the passage, to blow by this phrase that his heart went out to her. Because isn't that what we need when we're in our darkest hours? Don't we need somebody to feel compassion for us, to not only empathize with us, but to be moved in the depths of who they are and to have that movement determine that they will act on our behalf. We need this compassion. This woman needed this compassion, and Jesus has compassion on her. And in doing so, he's showing himself to be God. He's showing his character is right in line with God's character. Exodus chapter 34, as God is passing in front of Moses and revealing himself to humanity in a way that he has not up to this point in Scripture, the words that he speaks to Moses are this. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. In our darkest hour, God sees and has got moved, God has moved to act. And Jesus is showcasing that that's exactly what God does. That God meets us with compassion and with power. In the dark times, remember this. Remember that God sees and that God cares. And that movement is then... Uh, what comes next is Jesus says something absurd and something that really, if we're actually hearing it, sounds almost offensive. And to actually hear it, we need to know one other piece of information, and that's this, is that Jewish burials generally occurred the same day as the death, both for religious reasons and practical ones. This is a hot climate with no refrigeration, no advanced embalming. Once somebody died, you had to act. This woman is not in the midst of the tempered grief of a funeral home. These are the uncontrolled sobs, the wailing of getting the bad news in the emergency room. This grief is fresh, and it is raw. And Jesus encounters that, again, with hundreds of people, in all likelihood, looking on. And he says to this woman, don't cry. If you're that widow, and Jesus says to you, don't cry, what are you thinking? What do you want to do? You want to punch him, right? You can be honest. That's absurd, and that's almost offensive for him to say that. You know, God says some things in Scripture that seem absurd, that seem even offensive. John chapter 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. A little bit later on in the chapter, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. 
Jesus is saying this to his disciples less than 24 hours before they will be cowering in fear because he has been killed on a cross. It seems absurd. How could he say that to them knowing what was coming? Romans chapter 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Really, God? All things? Because there's some stuff that it seems like you're not at work in the midst of it. There's some stuff that seems like it's different, it's bigger than that. And when you're in the middle of those things, to have a verse like that come out can seem absurd, can seem offensive. James 1, 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. We're wired to run away from pain. And James says, consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds. That seems absurd on the face of it. We need to know that when God says things that seem absurd, He can always back it up. Now I want to just take a little excursus here and say that there is a danger for all of us in throwing some of these verses at people as bumper sticker theology when they're in the midst of a really hard time. And these things are absolutely true. But we need to be sensitive in how we use them with people, okay? And in a hospital room is not always the place to pull out Romans 8.28 with a, a smile on your face. A funeral home is not always the best time for James chapter 1, verse 2. Not because they aren't true, but because compassion might dictate tears before it would bring truth. So these are true, but I would caution all of us to be careful with them and to not um, try to apply this theology in such a way that ignores or minimizes the pain of this world. In Jesus telling this woman, don't cry, he is not minimizing her pain. He's pointing to the fact that he's about to do the impossible. And he does. He brings new life. Saying to this woman, don't cry, is absurd in the sense of being offensive. Saying to this dead young man, get up, is absurd in the sense of being ridiculous. You don't tell people who are dead to get up. That's not how it works. But Jesus does. And you know what? The dead young man listens. Jesus brings life where there was none. I love the way one commentator puts it when he says that Jesus displays a divine intolerance of death. It's like Jesus can't stand the fact that there's this dead person in front of him, so he's got to act, and he eradicates death from the situation as a whole. He says to the dead person, get up, and the dead person sits up and starts talking. And Jesus gives this young man back to his mother. Not only does he sit up, okay, some, this isn't a twitch. This boy came back to life. 
I wonder if some of you this morning are saying, you know what, if I could see that, then I would believe. I mean, I, I'm kind of on the fence right now, but if I could see a miracle like that, then I would believe. Let me encourage you and let me challenge you that ultimately this is not the greatest demonstration of the power and authority of Christ. Luke is still building up to that. The greatest demonstration of the authority of Christ isn't that he can command a dead person to rise and the person does. It's that Jesus from death can defeat death by the power of God in him. And that not only does he defeat death when he rises from the dead, but that he defeats sin and the power of sin, which leads to death in all of us and for all who have trusted in him for all time. Luke is building up to that ultimate show of the authority of Christ. Luke is driving home the point that God has come to save us, that he has come to meet us in our darkest hour with compassion and power. And as Jesus himself is raised from the dead, he rescues us eternally from death. As we begin to wrap up, I want to talk to four different groups of people who may be here this morning. And these aren't exclusive groups. You might be in more than one of these. But four different groups of, of people. First, maybe you hear this morning, you're saying, you know what? I'm okay. Uh, this isn't my darkest hour. Life is basically looking up. The checking account looks okay. The family's doing well. Uh, right now, it's sunny out. I would encourage you uh, to do two things. First, build this into your life. Pound this truth into your head, into your heart, because you will need it. If it's sunny out now, we know the dark clouds will come. And how we respond when the phone rings and gives us the news we did not want to hear is going to be dependent in large part on how we have prepared our souls ahead of time to trust in God when it seems like we have no reason to. Build this truth into your life now. You don't know when you will need it. Secondly, I would encourage you, if, if your skies are sunny today, look for and be aware of those around you who are in a dark time. And come alongside them and have compassion on them. Love them in word and in deed. That's why God has put us together as a body, as a family, so that we can care for each other. Second group, maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, you know what, I am in a dark place, okay? This is where I'm at right now, and he hasn't met me here yet. Yeah, great that he showed up for this widow 2,000 years ago, but man, the pressure is still on me, and this still really hurts. If that's you this morning, know this, that God has not forgotten you. He is not blind. He is not deaf. He is not far away. 
He is not powerless in the face of your pain and your challenges, but he is near. Keep looking to him. Keep trusting in him. Keep believing in him. And know that he will not fail. Though it might seem like it right now, he will not fail. And if not before then, there will come a day when Jesus Christ returns in power and in great glory to judge the earth and to set all things right and to bring home forever those who are his. And in that day, if not before, you will know that Jesus has responded with compassion and with power to the darkest hours of your life. Keep going. Keep going. Third group. Those who have seen God bring them from spiritual death to spiritual life. Those who have trusted in Christ and love him and want to serve him. Let's look at the reaction of the crowd for a second. Verse 16. They were all filled with awe and praised God. You think? Sometimes scripture understates things a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Like, this guy was dead. All these people are around and he's alive and his mother's got him back. There was a party, okay? They were all filled with awe and praised God. They had fireworks and a feast, I'm sure. I mean, they responded with recognition of who God was and with praise of him. And not only that, verse 17, this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. That didn't happen by accident. It happened because those who were there were sharing the news. We should respond the same. Let's recognize the power of God that is at work in us, that has saved us from sin, that has brought us from death to life. Let's praise him for it. And let's tell others around us. Let's not be remiss of sharing the good that God has done. Fourth group, those who are living in rebellion against Christ. You're living for yourself. You're disregarding the things of God. Maybe you know Christ or knew him at one point and you've turned aside and you've decided that you know better and you're going to do your own thing now. Maybe you've never bowed the knee to him. But consider this. In Jesus Christ is a man who tells a dead boy to get up. And death listens to him. Jesus has authority over all things. Who are you to live in rebellion against that? Who are you to refuse to bend your knee to Jesus Christ? Who are you to hold on to an area of your heart or your life and say, no God, not not this part, you can't have this. Who are any of us to think that we know better than God? And that we can resist who he is and the authority that he has. This morning I implore you, trust Christ. Acknowledge him as Lord. Bend your knee to his authority and power and give your life 
to serving him.